You're listening to Notes from Norwich. We're back with episode six of Notes from Norwich. I'm Jay Koshi, and I'm here with... With Marguerite Kirkhoff, and I'm here with... Chris Arnold. We're doing episode uh, episode six, uh, chapters 10, the, the second half of chapter 10, and chapter 11. There's a lot to unpack in this episode. There is. Where do we begin? Veronica's Veil? That's where we left off. Veronica is a legend. Um, the idea that this woman who met Jesus on his path to Golgotha reached out with her veil or a towel or a cloth of some sort and let Jesus wipe his face, which would have been an act of kindness. And that's how it is seen. And then when the veil was returned to her, there was the imprint of Jesus face or the image of Jesus face. Um, That veil has been preserved in Rome And apparently the idea, and Julian mentions this, that the image um, had changed, would change from time to time. And apparently that is what people noted about the veil, that the image would change from time to time. But then after a while, um, people noticed that it had just faded. Hmm. Um, Veronica is... uh, is is a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Um, she is acknowledged to some extent in the um, Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church, though she is not on our calendar as far as I know. Um, and in the Orthodox Church, I believe she has a place as well. Interestingly, um, she, the the act of her offering the veil to Jesus and his imprint Upon it is the sixth station in the stations of the cross. And so this is something that is remembered by people who pray the stations of the cross or attend the stations of the cross each Lent, even to this very day. And the fact that she is a legend, that there is nothing biblical uh, um, talking about her, that there is no biblical record of this act of hers doesn't stop people from loving this story because it is because it is an act of kindness her name of course veronica means true image so that's you know that's not a coincidence um and it's just it's just a wonderful thing and it ties in very well with julian who is talking about seeking god's face and so what could be more emblematic of this seeking of God's face than handing Jesus a towel and having him wipe his face in it and then having the imprint of his face on the towel? It's beautiful. It's, it's a theme that I think shows up in other parts of other Christian traditions, too. Like, I know the Eastern Orthodox, or at least the Armenian Orthodox, have this um, icon the Achira Poiti, um, that is from the fourth century, I think, the king of Edessa mm-hmm. received this cloth from heaven that had the imprint of God, Jesus's face. 
Is is Veronica's veil the same as the Shroud of Turin too? No. No. So it's another one. So yeah. This image of like Christ's face um, popping up again and again is really fascinating, and I I like the connection that you made with Julian, like seeking God's face, um, which I think is probably yeah. It seems that that's the connection that made her bring up Veronica's veil. Of course. Yeah. yeah of course. It's it's just interesting to me that this idea of seeking God's face. And there's that line in, in Psalm 27, you're, it, you say in my heart, seek my face, your face, Lord, will I seek? Um, that we're always seeking God's face. I mean, that is, it's, it's just a, it's a challenge for us. It's something that we long for, even though I think we know that in this life, we're not going to see it. I don't know. It, but the longing is the important thing. As I see it. So what do we make of this idea of cr- mankind being created in God's image and his likeness, which is where she goes right, right after. So she introduces this Veronica's veil. It's like, I, I want to say just as I've understood it by the grace of God. And then she starts her explanation with us being made in the image and likeness. Um, and Christ taking on the image. It, where, what is she trying to say? Beyond, I mean, we, I know where the church affirms that we are made in the image of God, but um, it's not clear to me how she's connecting this to the showing. Well, the showing, in the showing, Jesus' face is covered with blood and looks hideous and is distorted and ugly, which Julian says reflects our sinful nature, our, our vile flesh, as she calls it. But then Jesus, of course, as that moves aside, then Jesus, uh, the glory of God is shown the glory of God is shown in Jesus. So Jesus incarnation is to take our full nature, including everything that's wrong with us as, as a human race. And that is shown in this showing that he has this and then, and then changes us by his passion into the fullness of glory of our, of our true image. I think she's trying to make sense out of the theological conviction that any encounter with the divine should be beautiful, should be radiant mm. and glorious. And what is, what, what does she describe it? That his blessed face, which is the fairness of heaven, the flower of the earth and the fruit of the maiden's womb. I think she's expecting that, that, to see truly the face of God must be to see true beauty. And yet she's seeing this face, which is far from beautiful. It is hideous and grotesque in its, uh, um, well, it's covered in dried blood. It's not very pretty. <laughs> so yeah. I think she's trying to make sense of how these two can coexist. 
is the true face of God um, beauty hidden in unbeauty? And if that's the, and I think that's what she says that that because of the incarnation, the beauty of God is hidden in the unloveliness of human life, because God is is the mirror image of the transformation that we're all undergoing, moving from the unbeauty of our own lives towards the uh, um the restoration, the recreation, the, um, restoring to bliss. Yeah. I like that idea of the mirror image. Um, because it, having it framed as a mirror image kind of helps because I feel like if it's, if it's meant to be a loop that Christ is, or if she's framing it as a loop that Christ is assuming the kind of hideousness of our nature or to then transform it like that. She doesn't close that loop. Um, but if, if we're presenting it, cause she's, she stops with um, Christ's complexion changed with toil, sorrow, suffering, and dread in this section. Um, and so it's, it, if I'm trying, if I'm looking for a, a loop where he assumes and then brings up um that's not the narrative she's telling in this story, in this section, rather. Um, but this idea of like presenting it as a mirror image of Christ, Christ's glorious divinity taking on our hideousness, juxtaposed against the our hideousness being raised back to bliss and more. Um, framing it as a, a mirror image rather than sort of a loop is helpful for me to kind of make sense of this because I think I was looking for her to say, okay, it was changed with toil and sorrow. And then, and then what I was looking for an, and then what, um, but she doesn't, she doesn't give me, she doesn't give us the, the satisfaction of seeing that final transformation because that transformation is the mirror image of what she's showing us, I guess. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I, um, understanding our kind of theosis towards God as the mirror image of the incarnation and passion. It's, it's a helpful frame for me to understand. And I think it's, I think it is the frame that she's assuming here. I think it is. I agree. The whole and yeah, the whole bliss and even more where she seems to be implying that our ultimate our ultimate place in the kingdom will be even better than our original place in Eden. And this is because of, you know, this is because of the incarnation. This is because of what Jesus did for us, does for us. She links it. This, this gap between the perception of the unloveliness of Jesus's face in the image and her awareness that the, the true nature of, of, of Jesus has to be more beautiful than this. 
she links it to this gap between seeking and finding. Mm -hmm. This vision was a teaching from my understanding that the constant seeking of the soul pleases God very much. For the soul can do no more than seek, suffer, and trust. Which I was just listening to um, a different translation in an audiobook that I have while I was out on my walk. And it translated this as seek, suffer, and surrender, which I liked mm. because it was alliterative. Um, <laughs> so for her, this awareness that, um, hmm. The awareness, the awareness that the beauty of God can be hidden in the unbeauty of being covered in blood, <laughs> um, represents for, or, or it shows her that there's a gap between where we are now and where we're meant to be. Mm-hmm. That what she mm-hmm. sees now is not the fullness of what she's going to see, mm-hmm. and that's true for all of us. And so there's a gap between what we have now and what we want. Mm. And so for her, and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it myself, which might sound obvious given that I keep going with this run on sentence that for her, there's a recognition that the seeking is part of the, the spiritual, um, the spiritual journey that the, the, the desire to, see God is part of the point of human life, not just seeing God. Right. Right. It is the labor. Right. Yeah. She says, and thus I was taught for my own understanding that seeking is as good as beholding during the time that he wishes to permit the soul to be in labor. So I've just been reading St. John of the Cross's commentary on the spiritual canticle which is a poem that he wrote um, while he was in prison. He was, so he was a Carmelite who was imprisoned by other Carmelites, <laughs> which uh, is wild to me that, um, that religious orders used to uh, go around throwing each other in prison from time to time, but that was a crazy time. So he was in prison and, and um, kind of the theory is that he composed this poem to be um, a representation of his his own soul's longing for God and and the and God's answer to it, and so it's uh, the spiritual canticle. It's it's uh, very similar to Song of Songs in that it's kind of this poem that's a narrative, that's a dialogue between the bride and the bridegroom that's really the soul talking to Christ. And there's this whole thing in the first 10 verses of it where the soul, the bride keeps saying, you know, you've wounded me with these arrows of love. Why haven't you either taken my heart away completely and killed me or healed me of the wound? And so there's, you know, in this commentary, he says that, that, that to be wounded is to live in the state of desire that is unfulfilled, that, that the woundedness mm. introduces this desire and it's the desire, the longing that motivates the will to keep on seeking. I mean, that you can't just 
switch gears from from one to the other that the desire is part of the transformation um anyway so i'm putting those two somehow in dialogue in my own mind that works <laughs> But not in a fulfilled that way. Work. That dialogue definitely, that def- definitely works. Those those two images are very close to each other. Those two ideas for me. And that idea of the the seeking being the work. Um, makes the uh, the way she talks about beholding. Um, make more sense um because the beholding is this i mean she talks about it as a special grace this sudden revelation that it is something extraordinary um and that the beholding is if the beholding is the work then it is no if the seeking is the work then that's the substance of our christian life um which I think um, for those of us speaking of myself, speaking of myself um, who sort of crave to varying degrees, a uh, spiritual constellation approaching ecstasy of a, uh, um, those of us who crave a profound face-to-face encounter with God, it's easy to fall. It's easy for me to fall into seeing that as the substance of the spiritual life. Um, And anything short of that as failing. Um, But say, seeing that seeking is as good as beholding and then framing that beholding as something extraordinary shifts the focus back onto the seeking, um, which is beneficial for me to remind myself that it is the seeking that is the substance of the spiritual life. Um, And that the beholding may only be eschatological. Well, they say that absence makes the heart grow fonder. I've had people tell me that, um, uh, so we're, you know, in the Episcopal church now, the, up, up until a few months ago, the, the, the operating practice in most of our parishes is to have communion, to celebrate the Eucharist and to receive communion weekly. Uh, but, and people have told me that, that, that they, um, have either been in churches where communion is a monthly or quarterly thing, or they remember an older time in the Episcopal church where communion was, was a less frequent thing. And they've all said that, that in places where communion is less frequent, it's a bigger deal. People prepare for it more. People take it quote more seriously, unquote. And I've said, so what do you, I mean, what, is, what do you mean more seriously? And they've said, well, you know, there's a sense of anticipation, the sense of like, 
we, you know, we really need to make sure that we are free this weekend because it's a communion Sunday. Um, and so at various times in the past, not lately, and, but I am thinking about it again, now that we're all in this kind of Corona tide quarantine and none of us is, is receiving communion at the moment. Is it, is the desire for what we don't have changing our appreciation for it in a way that we take for granted when we have it, you know, when it's available. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, I think I, I have an anecdotal quibble with the idea that um, celebrating it, that the churches that celebrate it less often take it more seriously. Okay. Having grown up my entire childhood in once monthly communion parishes that, or congregations, because parish was anathema as a word, um, less frequent does not translate necessarily into being held in higher esteem or taken more seriously. Hmm. Um, and so I'm suspicious of this idea that distance necessarily makes the heart grow fonder. Um, and I, at the risk of discoursing, I think the analog, um, in the Episcopal church might be the, the sort of degradation in our sacramental theology that has come out of, um, it has come out as a response on the part of some people to the Eucharistic fast, um, that it is that mm. the response for some is not to hold the sacrament in higher regard, but is to change the nature of the sacrament, to play fast and loose with the way we treat it. I'm going to regret saying that. Um, <laughs> but I think, um, and this is where seeking, I think, is a, disposition towards absence that seeking absence i think does not necessarily produce the attitude of seeking that julian's talking about um that there is a uh a hunger a holding in high regard a treasuring of what is absent that has to be there for it truly to be seeking, you know? Um, because if distance necessarily produced this kind of um, heightened, heightened love, heightened affection, esteem for what is distant, um, Then, then I think the the way we see people reacting to this Eucharistic famine um, would be different. I think it would be across the board a higher esteem for the sacrament rather than treating it as a spiritual pill. You know. Mm. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that um, seeking is an active disposition. 
it, it's not something we necessarily default to in situations of absence. And I think this is where Julian's talking about seeking as seeking it. The, the seeking itself is a product of God's grace. And, and she frames the seeking of God as a universal grace, but she does frame it as something that is a gift. So I think it's um, that, that for me shifts it away from, oh, we'll, we'll default to this yearning um, and more into this is, uh, this is a, the yearning is a vocation that we must strive to live into. It's not something we fall back on. It's something we, we reach forward to. Good. Anything else in chapter 10? Or do we want to move on to whether or not sin exists? <laughs> chapter 11. It's provocative. Does sin exist? Sin is no deed. It seems thoroughly Augustinian here. Um, uh, in the sense that like she has a notion of evil as privation, not as this kind of substantial opposite force, you know? I don't even know if she sees evil as privation. I think, well, well, here's, here's the bit that I'm looking at. We're all probably looking at the same bit, but uh, our readers or our listeners may not be. I gaze with deliberation, seeing and knowing in that vision that he, God, does all that is done. I marveled at that sight with a mild fear and thought, what is sin? For I truly saw that God does everything, no matter how little. And I truly saw that nothing is done by luck or by chance, but everything by the foreseeing wisdom of God. So what I'm taking in in here and that it goes on over the next few, uh, the next half of the chapter, um, that while for Augustine, evil is the the privation or the, the lessening of the presence of the goodness of God, it sounds as though Julian is saying that there's no such thing as evil. There's only our perception of things from our limited understanding, from our blindness and our singular point of view. You know, I can only see things from my own perspective as Chris Arnold is this, you know, me. (laughs) I, I can't see things from other people's perspective. I can't see the future. I can barely see the past. And even that's heavily filtered. Um, and I certainly can't see everything else that is. So, the things that appear to me to be evil are, are entirely subjective experiences that have nothing to do with, with you know, because they have happened, God must have caused them to happen. And if God causes them to happen, then they must inherently be good, which is a pretty bold thing to say. And that if something seems evil to me, 
that's my problem. That's, that's a limitation of my viewpoint. That seems to me what she's saying, which is a very bold thing to say. So I want to check it with you, too. I think we have to go back to the first part of this chapter, the first sentence of this chapter, where she says that she saw God in a point. And that is very strong to me, a point, a dot. She saw God in a dot. Like everything is just one tiny little dot to Julian. This is, this is what she saw. And what it meant to her was that everything is one so that all that happens, all that becomes, all our facial expressions, our jobs, our work, our play, our music, everything is in that dot. And that's where God is. And so, yes, the the next step from that is that everything that happens is from the making of God. And this is something I, I have never, ever said this kind of thing out loud in my life because nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to hear that everything that happens that everything comes from God. Nobody ever wants to hear that because they don't want to think that, Oh, you know, my little, my little four-year-old broke his arm. That was God made him break his arm. You know, that's the kind of, that's where people go with that. But if you think of it cosmically, that in creation, God exists in a point then for me anyway, everything is indeed good because everything indeed does come from God. I think, um, you know, you mentioned where people go with it. Oh, like God made my child break his arm or um, This is where I think I would want to draw a distinction between all things coming from God and all things being caused by God. Okay, sure. Um, I think everything has its being in God. Like God is God is the grounding. The, his continual sustaining of the world is the only way any of us exist or are able to do anything. And in that sense that everything that is, is of God. Mm-hmm. Um, I am skeptical of the idea that this means that God is the proximal cause of everything. I think that takes the idea of everything having its being in God um, and sort of turns God into a puppeteer, Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. marionette player. Yep, yep. Um, And so as I read Julian and she says, there is no no doer but he, um, 
just uh, for just as all that has being in nature is of God's creating, so everything that is done is in the character of God's doing. I, I, I see her talking more in this sense of God is the ground of mm-hmm. all doing. Um, mm-hmm. Then, um, necessarily uh, that every act is right. done by God or right. Right. Of course. Um, right. I've been reading Bicknell's um, commentary on the 39 articles. Um, and uh, he, imp- he got this image from somebody else, but uh, likened sort of God achieving God's end to a chess game between a chess master and a novice player who has no chance of ever beating the chess master. Um, and, um, the end is clear and it, uh, and the game is driven by the chess master. The chess master is always in control. Um, but is not necessarily <laughs> is not um, the one making the opponent's moves, um, and that image is, I think, um, can be taken as a way to maintain um, personal responsibility, personal action, agency. Um, without denying this idea that all things come of the old Lord. Um, You know, because I, I don't think, um, I don't think Julian would, go towards a platitude of um, everything happens for a reason. No. Um, I think for her, the goodness is the goodness of all deeds is because of the ultimate source of their being and the ultimate end that all shall be well. The, that right. the end, end result is checkmate against right. evil and death. Exactly. Um, I'm, so that's, I, I, I'm inclined to read this whole section more on a cosmic level mm-hmm. rather than kind of projecting that down onto individual actions. Does that seem fair? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It is, it is cosmically intended and cosmically seen she says, in fact, that she doesn't ever see any human actions. What is it? She says the actions of creatures were not shown. So yeah. it's just this big cause. This, this is a God's eye perspective. Exactly. And for her, for her to see that, to see that all of creation resounds to that, is is in a is in a harmony and is in tune with that point that God is in. I mean, we're all there, and so 
we we need to do we need to do what we need to do and of course we need to do it with that with that greatness in mind so then i don't know what to do with this a man looks upon some deeds as well done and some deeds as evil but our lord does not look upon them so And then a few lines down, it is easy to understand that the best deed is well done, but just as well as the best and most exalted deed is done, so well is the least deed done. And all of them in the character and in the order in which our Lord has it ordered or ordained from without beginning, which makes it sound to me as though she's saying that the moral evaluation of the goodness or badness of deeds is not something that God does. It's something that we do, but that I I don't see that there's a distinction between the cosmic sphere where God is operating and the human sphere of, you know, like me choosing what I'm going to make for breakfast in the morning or choosing to insult somebody versus give them a kind word or something that I don't don't know that I I see a, those two broken apart. I don't think I'd frame them as different spheres. They're different frames of viewing reality. You know, like I think, um, So, to say that to to I, I see this chapter as like okay, this is this is the cosmic frame, and she doesn't delve in like as Marguerite says, she didn't see the individual actions of creatures. Like that's the our our subjective frame is I don't think really discussed here. Um. I think elsewhere she talks about sin in a way that is intelligible from our frame, but I I don't think these are separate spheres. I think they're attempts to talk about the reality of sin in our lives on the one hand and the divine drama on the other hand. Um, which are dramatically different frames of reference. Um, I think she's, she's trying to find language to talk about both of them. Um, I just wonder where the interface between the two is. If God's completely the active force in at, at one level, and at another level, I still have a measure of free will where I can sin and not sin. At some point, my actions are my own. And at some point, every action is foreordained by God. And where's the boundary between those two? Or is it that everything that I do is foreordained by God and I'm not in control of my life after all? I I don't know how she would systematically tease this out, but my sense from the way she treats seemingly incommensurate realities elsewhere is that 
they they meet in the person of the crucified word that somehow the cross is where the frame of our agency and free will and the frame of god's eternal purpose um come together like i i see I see that as being her impulse. Every time there's this encounter with um, something grand and cosmic, eternal and finite, um, substantial, that that the way she bridges that is by turning to the cross. Now, I don't know that she really fleshes that out in this showing. Um, but that, that's my hunch as to like where that, where they meet, hmm. you know, less, less that it's a, a boundary. Um, and more that they're tied together in a point, which is the cross. Does that seem plausible? Yes, it it does. She does struggle with the idea of sin, and we will get to that later in this book. She struggles with it mightily. It is, and by struggling with it, I mean just just as a concept. I mean, how, how can sin exist, and how can we be good, and how can things work out, et cetera. Um, how can God love us though we sin? How can we sin even though God has made us? She does struggle with that. In In this particular moment, however, she seems to be wiping that all aside with the eye, with the, with the vision of God in a point with the vision of the oneness of all of creation and how, and how all our, all our living and all our doing are done in and through God. And, and I, I, I promise you, I do understand that is, that is just not an easy thing to, um, to live with, and it, it's not—it's not popular. It's not mm-hmm. a popular opinion yeah. because it seems to take free will away. And I have to say that I'm not a big fan of, of free will or the idea of it. Um, I certainly have the illusion of it in my own life. I can, you know, I, I can walk into the living room or I can walk out onto the porch or I can, you know, my goodness, I have so much free will. But it, it, I think that Julian's sense of where God is and where she is is so big and so so surrendered mm-hmm. that the idea of sin, as she says, it is it's nothing. It's it's nothing compared. It's nothing. It's it's no deed. It's nothing. And I mean, look at Jesus all throughout the whole 
gospel, whenever anybody's sinning, the first thing he says is that, you know, you're forgiven, you're okay, everything's all right. Mm-hmm. Give me your hand and I'll, I'll make you better. So, I, you know, I'm, as I said, I have never spoken these words out loud and I probably never will again. I don't want to be murdered. I still maintain that the central thesis of this chapter is that the problem is that with our moral evaluation of things is either good or bad, evil or good. Um, and that that's a human issue and not a divine issue. Um, and then I'm left with wrestling with whether or not I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Because the tricky thing for me is that then, you know, the answer is, well, what about this COVID vi- virus that's killing all these people? Mm-hmm. Are you saying that within the mm-hmm. action of God, that is morally neutral that that is or or even that it is inherently good because it's of god's creation and i would have to say i i would think that julian would have to say yes it has to be if god has done it then it's good if we appear if if it appears to us as evil that's just the limitation of our perspective I mean, I think, I think that's that's the wrestling match, right? Sure. If if the COVID nineteen and if is in quotation marks is something that has come from God, that doesn't mean that we are not meant to try and defeat it. That doesn't mean that we are meant to just let it happen and lie back and you know mm-hmm. pretend that it doesn't exist or say that you know to I think that I think that if quote unquote again it is come has come from God, it is our response to it that is what we need to look at. Mm-hmm. I wonder if um but I I Chris, I see that definitely being set up if we take this chapter on its own merits. Um, But I wonder if kind of, if we place it in the context of the rest of what she says, like, I don't know that she goes so far as to say sin is an illusion Right. That's just from our perception that we need to figure out. Um, I She does treat sin, although she, I think, is clear that sin is ultimately devoid of power and substance. Um, right. She treats it as real in our lives. Um, and I don't think that's a kind of useful rhetorical fiction. Like I, d- I think she does see sin as real even, a- and as something to be grappled with in our lives, even as in an ultimate sense, it is devoid of power and substance. And so I, I think that that 
reality of sin recedes into the background in this chapter, I think because she's presenting here the quote-unquote God's eye view. But I think if we hold this against other chapters where she talks about sin in our life, it's, it's hard to read her, I think, as saying sin is sort of a subjective figment. Well, we'll just have to see when we get to those chapters. <laughs> Another thing that I will also suggest is that by seeing God in a point, she's collapsing all of time into that point. So that we tend to think of our salvation story as creation, fall, incarnation, passion, death, resurrection, and on to and on to salvation. Whereas I think she's seeing those things as simultaneous. And that is, that's probably where I'm coming from in terms of, in terms of all of this, because if everything, if all of that is simultaneous, even though we know, of course, historically, that those things did not happen all at once, but theologically, if they are all simultaneous from the standpoint of God, then sin is indeed no deed. Sin is, it, it was destroyed before it was even, before it was even happened. It was all poof like that in a, in a moment. There's a, the difference in temporal frame where there's right outside time. What is sin versus as time unfolds, what is sin? Yes. That resonates. And we're nearly done with time anyway. That's got us most of the way through chapter 11. I think... It's got us all the way through. The last bit, see I am God, see I am in everything, see I do everything, see I never lift my hands from my works nor ever shall without end, see I lead everything to the end I ordained from it without beginning, by the same power, wisdom, and love with which I made it. How would anything be amiss? I see this. I I see this as all being about the end to which God ordained it. Like that is, that's that's the frame I think I use in reading this chapter. Um, which I think is where I'm getting this idea of a God's eye view. Mm-hmm. Um. So what do you do with things that appear evil to you personally? Like in light of this, when you look out at the world or your own life or whatever 
and something appears evil and something appears good. Is that true? Useful well, illusion? Something to be ignored? I think it's... I examine my conscience and see where, if, but usually where, um, my actions have contributed to it. Um, And try to place it in the context of the larger narrative. I think I... The way I try to approach it, um, how this plays out in pastoral situations is another can of worms, but the way I try to approach it for myself is where is my agency in this? So that, that, that our, our I frame and what do I do about my agency in this? while at the same time also placing it in the context of God's eternal purpose that will not be foiled. I I try to hold the two together. I understand that I, that I sin and that I contribute to the world's evil um, all the time. And I, I pray about that and I I work on that. If I see evil somewhere, I I try to defeat it. I long to defeat all evil. Um all wrong. One way or another, I'm I don't have any good technique for doing that other than prayer that's a good question as i've thought about the evil i've seen and experienced in my life it is no comfort to tell myself that everything happens for a reason um and that i think is why i am hesitant to project god's grand purpose onto individual acts um mm-hmm. it is it's no comfort for me to say oh you know Conversion therapy happened for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, however, a comfort for me to say, in the end, all of this is going to be made new. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, That's why I want to keep these kind of frames, perspectives, um, distinct but not separate. 
that if I, if I try to take the cosmic, cosmic view of things and use it to understand the little things, that's a message of despair. Um, but if I understand the little things insofar as my agency is at play, and then place them in the context of the larger things. That's the only way I find comfort. To understand to the best of my ability um, through examination of conscience, through therapy, through learning about the world, to understand the sort of <laughs> this, this life dynamics, this worldly dynamics, um, to try to grasp that, but to know that that's not where the comfort will come from. That the comfort then lies in, okay, this situation sucks. This life is broken. This evil that I am seeing, I am witnessing, I am experiencing is horrible. Yes, I understand these different things at play. And they are, they are real. Like my, my agency in this is real. hold that all and then to place it in the broader picture of this real evil will be well. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the Revelations of Divine Love, the Order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.